Good morning. So, was anybody here interested in going to the gospel class? Any hands? No. Okay. You know that it's going on right now, and if you wanted to go, you can, uh, you can do that, or go next week. You can listen to it online as well. Uh, welcome to Element. We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles underneath the seats or in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot yours, you can borrow one. We have sermon notes on all of the communion tables around the room. And if you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion. You can click on Events, and it'll bring up the sermon notes and all of the announcements. And it's a great reference throughout the week. Have you guys heard that before? I know. We're going to do something just a little bit different today, so I'm not going to follow the usual pattern, so we may uh, throw you off. I'm actually going to summarize kind of where we've been and introduce the sermon for today, and then we're going to read the scripture. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, my name is Eric, and I am one of the pastors here, and we are in the, in the uh, book of Acts. We're in chapter 7 this week. And last week we saw how God worked through a man named Stephen in a supernatural way. He was a natural man with supernatural enablement. He's like you and he's like me. He's just a regular guy until the Holy Spirit fills him and he yields and submits himself to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have to remember now that Stephen was a foreign Jew. He was a Hellenist, a Greek believer who was newly called to be a deacon in the church. And he was one of the seven who were chosen, we're told, by Luke, because he was a man of good repute, and he was full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So he wasn't an apostle, but obviously he was a gifted preacher. As Luke tells us, he was filled with grace and power, and he spoke with a wisdom that could not be withstood by his opponents. Now what's interesting is this probably even includes Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. Now, if you remember, Paul writes about himself in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, that as a Jew and a Pharisee, he could boast about how advanced he was among his contemporaries. He was a champion of the Jews and of the law and of the truth as they understood it. And there's no doubt that Paul at this time would have heard about Stephen's powerful preaching and how he refuted every argument against Jesus. And so it is reasonable to think that even Paul may have gone up against Stephen and argued against him and lost at some point. <clears throat> and Paul, he probably learned from Stephen, as he would later write in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what we saw is that God was using Stephen in these amazing ways and the impact of his preaching was being felt so much that some from the synagogues outside of Israel, which were about 500 at the time, they resorted to false accusations of blasphemy against God, against Moses, the temple, and the law in order to discredit Stephen and to put a stop to him. Now, if you blaspheme those four things, there's nothing left. There's nothing sacred left in Judaism. And so they arrest him and they bring him before the council, which is the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And this is the Supreme Court for all religious matters. They were the ones who were responsible for sentencing Jesus to death. And so they don't like at all this idea that these Christ followers are filling Jerusalem with Jesus' name. And not only that, they're not only preaching the gospel, but they're declaring that his blood is on their hands for having sent their own Messiah to the Romans, to be killed. And so Stephen, he's before the Supreme Court. He stands alone. There's no lawyer to defend him. There's nobody to process the evidence. There's no jury to be objective. 
And he defends himself against these four charges of blasphemy. But again, he's not just content to defend himself. He's going to do what they've been doing all along. And that is he's going to indict them by showing them from their own history and from the scriptures how their theology falls short and how it misses God's plan and how they are guilty of rejecting God's ultimate deliverer, his own son, Jesus Christ. And it's going to cost Stephen his life. Now, we have to remember that at this point, Stephen's only been a Christian for a short time, weeks, maybe months at the most. And what he unpacks as we get into these opening verses is a stunning understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. He didn't acquire that knowledge in the short time since he was saved. He was a Jew, and he knew his Old Testament scriptures. He knew the Old Testament Bible. Now, I doubt that this was Stephen's first sermon, but it is definitely his last And oftentimes when we get a sermon in the Bible, it's just a summary or it's just a a little snippet. But this is actually an extended, maybe even an exhaustive transcript of what Stephen had to say. So it's really a privilege to be able to have this. And so we are going to look at the entire sermon today, 53 verses in Acts chapter 7. It is long. I'm warning you up front. And so it's tempting to want to just highlight portions of it and to go through it. But let me ask you a question. What's more important? What I have to say this morning or what the scriptures have to say? Easy decision, right? So why don't you stand with me now for the reading of God's word? Paul says to a young pastor, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. So we're going to do that now because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In verse 1 of chapter 7, Stephen says, uh, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our fathers Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after, this, and, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child." And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, Jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Verse 17, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would be 
not be kept alive. And at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, uh, as they were quarreling, and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wrongdoing his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he, as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is, who is in the congregation. Who is, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living, and oracle, living oracles to give to us. Our father refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that drove God out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God, for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for this sermon of Stephen that's recorded for us. And Lord, uh, today as we stand, we also honor him as one of the first martyrs in your church. Father, there are so many things for us to see here. I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, as we see Stephen's life, as we listen to his message and how he preached it and what it means to us today. So I pray that you would speak to each one of us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Have a seat. Thank you for enduring that. I know that was long. And hopefully it will all kind of fall into place. So we see here that Stephen retells the story of their history and God's grace to Israel. He shows that he's not a blasphemer, but that he's a firm believer in the God of glory and of Moses and in the law. But he, like the others now, after Jesus' resurrection, he can see how the entire story of Israel's past was all pointing to and all fulfilled in Jesus. They understood that while the temple may have been the proper place of worship for a time, now that Jesus has come, we worship God in spirit and in truth, not through the Levitical ceremonies of the Mosaic system, and that we're no longer under the law of Moses as a code of righteousness, but rather we are to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that we obtain a righteousness from Christ that comes by faith that is apart from the law. And so Stephen here, he masterfully lays out the foundation of their history to show that it is all about Jesus, this Jesus whom the elders had rejected and killed, just like they did all of the other prophets and deliverers that God had sent to them. Now think about this for a minute. This is a true statement. You never know when you're going to need your Bible. There's no indication that Stephen had any advanced warning that this moment was coming. He knew the scriptures, and as a result, when the time came for him to speak, he was prepared and he was ready. The Apostle Peter, he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This describes Stephen to a T. We should always be prepared to explain what, who Jesus is and what he's done, because we never know when the time will come. And so we prepare so that we're ready all the time. And so Stephen is ready, and so when the moment comes, he respectfully, calling them brothers and fathers, he walks them through the Old Testament, and he's leading everything to the person and the work of Jesus. You see, they would have known these stories. This is their history. They would have known them. They would have studied them as children. But the problem is they missed Jesus in all of it. Aaron touched on this last week as well. We need to know our Bibles. But it's possible to know your Bible and not know Jesus. And Jesus himself, he said that he came to fulfill all of Scripture. And he said that Scripture was all about him. In John chapter 5, verse 38 and 39, Jesus said, You diligently study the Scriptures, thinking that in them you'll find eternal life. You fail to recognize that these are the Scriptures that testify about me. Jesus himself taught a Bible study after he rose from the grave. And at the end of the Gospel of Luke, you can read that. He showed how the whole Old Testament was about him. The whole Bible is about Jesus. So they knew their Bible, but they didn't really know their Bible because they didn't know Jesus. 
And so what Stephen is doing here is he's taking the Bible that they know and he's leading them to the Jesus that they did not know. And so we call that apologetics, which basically means speaking in defense of something, giving a reasonable argument and justification for something. But for Christians, for us, it requires more than just knowledge. It requires wisdom. It requires the wisdom to apply the scriptures to life situations. And most importantly, it requires the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so it's this combination that has been called knowledge on fire. And I love that description. Knowledge on fire. Every believer should be prepared to give a biblical defense of their faith, not simply some emotional, romanticized idea that doesn't come from truth, but a passionate and a reasonable response that rises out of divine revelation. And in this chapter, Stephen demonstrates this knowledge on fire as he defends the faith by the power of the Spirit, using his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And so as we went through this long sermon, on the surface of it, it it seems like it's kind of long-winded and maybe a little bit irrelevant. Or maybe, you know, he doesn't really even refer to Jesus that much in in this whole sermon. It's easy to think that, but that's really not so. It's very pointed. It's very piercing. And his hearers would know exactly what he was saying. He was laying the foundation that shows how their theology and how their beliefs about God's plan and God's activity was wrong. He says, look back over your history. Where did all the important things take place? Not in this holy land. Abraham was called out of Ur. And and Moses, uh, God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. And he prepared him for 40 years in Midian. And God led his people into Egypt and then out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and into the desert. The patriarchs were buried in Samaria. What's his point in all of this? There's a couple things. The first thing is the activity of God is not confined to the geographical land of Israel. As a matter of fact, it's not confined to any geography at all. But not only that, he goes on to show that the worship of God is not confined to the temple that's in Jerusalem. He reminds them that Moses had to remove his sandals uh, because at the burning bush because that was holy ground. And that Moses met God at Mount Sinai where he received his living words. And he points out that it was the tabernacle that was commanded to be built by God and commissioned by God, not the temple. And that was the suitable place of worship. And that was available to Israel in the wilderness before they ever entered the Holy Land. And so what do we see here? All of these places were holy ground. Why? Because that's where God was. That's where God was. And so he shows them the truth that God is independent of any temple. He says the Most High doesn't dwell in houses made with hands because he's the creator of all things. And finally, the last thing he shows is that throughout all of the history of the Jews, they constantly rejected God's representatives, God's redeemer, God's deliverer. They constantly rejected them. And so he starts this by talking about Abraham, whom they would have called their father. He reminds them that Abraham was a pagan. He didn't start out as a Jew. He circumcised himself, and he became the father of the Jewish people. But he was a pagan, like you and me. He was living apart from God. He came from a godless family. But God chose him. Before Abraham ever called out to God, 
God chose Abraham. He elected him. He chose him. God showed up and he spoke to him. Before Abraham ever called out to the Lord, the Lord called out to him. And the Lord made a promise to Abraham. He said, you are going to become a father. And he he and his wife were barren. They were elderly. They had no children. They had no capacity to have children. And he says, through your line will come a nation of sons, the nation of Israel. And through that nation will come a particular son. It was a promise that this promised son of miraculous birth would be a blessing to all of the earth, to all of the nations. And ultimately, the Lord Jesus, he comes. He's the son of Abraham, and he's the son of God. He's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And so God gave Abraham a son, Isaac. And through Isaac came Jacob. And through Jacob comes the 12 patriarchs. And through them come the nation of Israel. It started as a family of about 70 around the end of Genesis. And by the beginning of Exodus, it's a nation of a few million people. And through these people comes one person. God becomes a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the descendant of Abraham. He's the promised son that is born of a supernatural, miraculous intervention and birth by God. And he's not just any man's son. He's God's son. He's the son of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the blessing that was promised to Abraham and and promised to bless all of the nations of the earth through Abraham. And then he moves on from there and he highlights Joseph, who was one of the 12 patriarchs. And he says that he was hated and he was despised and he was betrayed by his brothers. And he was ultimately thrown into a hole and left for dead. But Joseph got out of that hole and he rose up from poverty to luxury and he went from a place of obscurity to a place of great leadership and prominence. And he used, as a result, he used this position as a mighty ruler with lots of resources to care for and to feed and to love and ultimately to save people. And not only that, he forgave his brothers. And in his great reconciliation with them, recorded in Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But then even in this story, Stephen turns the tables and he reminds them that even their early fathers rejected the leader that God had given to them. They rejected Joseph. He was given to them as God's leader, as God's deliverer. He says the true blasphemers of that era were your forefathers. They are the ones who rejected Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery and then later came back and rejected him again. And so we see here that the history of rejection, it's very much in the fabric of Israel's forefathers. And as Stephen, as he presents the life of Joseph here, you can see glimpses of Jesus. You see, Joseph was a part of the chosen people. So was Jesus. Joseph was sold for envy. So was Jesus. Joseph was sent to a pit to die, and yet he was rescued from that. Jesus did die, and he rose from that death. Jesus and his father maintained their love for each other the whole time. So did Joseph and his father. Jesus was accepted by the Gentiles as Joseph was accepted by the Gentiles. And yet they were rejected by their own people. Jesus was humbled like Joseph and then exalted like Joseph. Jesus is the greater Joseph here. And he used what was intended for evil, the murder of God on a cross for good and for the saving of many lives, including yours and mine. And he reconciles with us, and he makes us family, he makes us brothers, and he looks us in the eye with love, and he says, you murdered me, and what you meant for evil has turned out to be for the good 
of many lives and the salvation of many lives. And then he moves on from Joseph, and then he goes and talks about Moses, and he highlights Moses. And in that day, God's people still lived in Egypt, and they were under great oppression. And there was a king and a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph and all that he had done for Egypt. And so he ruled them as a cruel taskmaster. He had no grace. He had no love. He had no mercy for God's people. But God is faithful to fulfill his promise and to keep his covenant. So God raises up this man, Moses, who was born in Egypt, and he puts the Holy Spirit in him and on him, and he empowers him for preaching and for miraculous works and signs and wonders and deeds. And Moses, he rises up as the prophet of God, and he rebuked Pharaoh, calling him and calling the nation of Egypt to repentance. And the more he preached, the harder their hearts became. And the result was that ultimately God, through a series of miraculous supernatural events, he delivers his people from slavery, from bondage, to freedom, and to worship. But how did his own people treat Moses? Stephen says, take a look at your history. They rejected Moses. Who made you a ruler and a judge? He reminds them that Moses himself said, God will raise up a prophet, a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses points to somebody else who is to come, but they oppose him. So they rejected Joseph the first time, and he came the second time as the deliverer. They rejected Moses the first time, and he comes the second time, and he was the deliverer. Can you see here the foreshadowing of Jesus? Jesus was rejected the first time, but he will return again with full deliverance. Moses was a deliverer from among his own people, and so was Jesus. Moses came down down from a palace to fulfill the role of a slave in order to save slaves. So did Jesus. Moses offered himself and was rejected. So was Jesus. Moses came back a second time to redeem his people and to lead them to the promised land. Jesus will come back a second time to lead his people to the promised land. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus comes as the prophet that was promised to come through the line of Moses He comes to face our Pharaoh, Satan, and he comes to deliver us from the bondage of sin and slavery and to rescue us and to bring us into freedom so that we can worship him and we can enjoy him. And then he moves on from Moses and he gets to the tabernacle, the temple period in verses 44 through 50. Israel would have had before them at this time this magnificent temple. And so they're thinking, this is so of God that anybody who speaks against the temple is guilty of blasphemy. But Stephen points out something here that they may have overlooked. It was the tabernacle that God had commissioned to be built. It wasn't the temple. Building the temple was actually King David's idea, and he made that request of God. And God didn't allow David to build the temple. He allowed his son Solomon to actually build the temple. And so he reminds them that God is not confined to an earthly building, and that with the coming of Jesus, the temple and its worship are now done away with. And then, finally, he directly and he boldly, he indicts them of resisting God, just like their forefathers did. He said, just as they sinned against the Lord and his representatives, so are you doing the same thing. They sinned against the types of Christ, Joseph and Moses, but you, you have sinned against the Messiah, the righteous one, the Lord Jesus himself, whom you murdered. How do you think they respond to that? Well, we're going to have to wait till next week to see that. So hang on. 
There's so much here for us to see. There's so much for us to learn. We see Jesus weave throughout his sermon here. But I want to point out a few things, a few lessons that we can learn from Stephen's life as well as from his sermon. And the first thing I want to mention is that Stephen shows us what balanced Christianity really looks like. You see, Luke wants us to take a special note of Stephen's character as he followed Jesus completely and fully. You see, some think that a balanced Christian life is one of uneventful moderation. You know, don't get too carried away. Don't take this thing too far. But a biblically balanced life is a radical life where we follow a revolutionary Lord in everything that we do. See, balance refers to totality in obedience in all areas of life. It's not moderation, and it's not extremism. You see, there are too many examples in the Christian church today where believers focus on certain parts of their lives while they ignore other parts of their lives. The talented singer who has an uncontrollable temper. The passionate apologist who stays home studying rather than participating in Sunday corporate worship. The gifted preacher who neglects his family at home. You see, Stephen's life and his ministry, it showed combinations of scriptural characteristics that we don't often see going together. He preached powerfully, and he served widows faithfully. He was inspired, and he also had wisdom. He had peace under pressure, and yet he could fearlessly proclaim the truth and thunder accusations that would ultimately lead to his death. And in the midst of it all, he expressed the graciousness of God in the midst. And because of that, Stephen, like Jesus, was considered a radical in how he fearlessly blazed new trails for the gospel. So think about your own life. How radical are we for Jesus? You see, the gospel is, so, is by nature so radical that all serious Christians will sooner or later find themselves challenging people in the way that they think and in the way that they act. The scriptures were the source and the authority for Stephen's radical faith. But what's interesting here is what he preached wasn't new. It wasn't new. It was revolutionary. He had discovered truth that was already taught in the Old Testament scriptures and in the teachings of Jesus. And if we come to the Bible with an open mind, we will find out that it will make us radicals too because God's word always has something radical to say to this fallen world. That's the truth. We may never fully understand the truth in the Bible, but we will, if we're open and we have an open mind, we will find that we'll get fresh truth as we come to the Word of God, if we're open to learning from the Scriptures. And what will happen when we do that is some in the world and even some in the church will oppose what we have to say and what we discover and what we communicate to them. The question is, are we willing to go as far as Stephen did in proclaiming God's truth? Some will be hostile to that truth. How will we react? We're told that Stephen was a man full of grace. And he shows, he shows us that whatever people may do to us, however severe their sins are against us, however severe they may be, we must always be able to affirm the supremacy of grace. The Apostle Paul, he would write, he oversaw Stephen's execution. He would later write in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy when I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He refers to this superabounding grace that is over all sins and all situations. You see, it's when our radical faith in our radical God leads us to this radical love for the lost that we will be compelled to share his radical truth and to be able to demonstrate his radical grace in any situation that we face. And this can only come by communing with God, by spending time with Him, in His presence, in His Word, with His people. In the case of Stephen, we see that as the viciousness of the attacks deepened, his communion with God actually deepened. There's no doubt that he knew, and he practiced what David wrote in the Psalms. In Psalm 24, verse 4, David wrote, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. But he had also come to learn that Jesus' eternal sacrifice had opened up a new and a living way to seek God's beautiful face. We no longer need to have fear in approaching God's throne because now we can come to him with boldness and with confidence wherever we are. And the Apostle Paul, he would later state this very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, where he said, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And we can worship Him wherever we are. The second thing that I want to show us here is that Stephen shows us what inspired Christian wisdom really looks like. Because of God's presence in his life, he was able to outlive in terms of character, and he was able to outthink those who oppose the gospel. How did he do it? We saw the first thing already by knowing the scriptures. He knew the scriptures and he understood them. The second thing, he knew the people that he was ministering to and how they thought. He understood their worldview. And the third thing, he let the scriptures speak penetratingly to the issues that were faced by his audience. His sermon is a great example of true biblical contextualization which is where we take our message and we make it relevant to the context in which it's presented. He knew his audience, and so he spoke from the Jewish scriptures. They clearly understood his message, even though they were unwilling to repent. And for us, every generation of believers must seek ways to make the gospel relevant to their communities without compromising its truth. And this comes only from God's inspiration as we diligently pray and as we look for ways to make the connection between the world of the Bible and the world of our audience. And again, when that happens, some will be provoked and they'll oppose the word, but some will receive it and accept it and they will be transformed by Christ. And the fourth thing here, so, the fourth thing here we need to ensure that there is no hindrance to the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Paul, again, wrote in 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So perhaps the Apostle Paul, learning from Stephen as his example, he would later follow that with the Gentiles. So instead of starting with the Jewish scriptures, which would have been foreign to his audience, He used creation as the common ground to build that bridge between biblical truth and the context of his audience. And the last thing that I want us to see from Stephen's sermon 
is that his indictment of the religious leaders, it should serve as a warning to all of us that are here. We should reflect and we should examine what we might be opposing and who we might be opposing in our midst and what God might be doing in our midst. Because the Christian church has many examples of God's people being out of step with what God was doing, either by opposing people that were pleasing God or by siding with people who were championing unbiblical causes. For example, when a a young William Carey, who later founded the Baptist Missionary Society, he placed this challenge of missions before uh, uh, some Baptist ministers. He was rebuked by a senior minister who said, Sit down, young man. When God chooses to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or without mine. When Hitler, when he began his evil nationalistic campaign, many Christians had joined him. But more than that, many more, not only in Germany, but throughout the rest of the world, stayed quiet as they saw Jews being slaughtered and they heard these stories. How can that be? How can that happen? I think Aaron touched on it last week. We want to be comfortable, and so we resist change. We prefer our comfort over change that God wants to work in our lives. But a balanced, radical Christianity can never coexist with comfort. The reality is that human thoughts are too far from God's thoughts. And the closer that we get, the nearer we get to God's way of thinking, the more uncomfortable we are going to become. And so we have to always be open to change and open to self-criticism because that will often come through people who discovered something from the word that the rest of us have neglected. And so God help us all to welcome those prophets and not to persecute them. And so what we see here is Stephen's sermon, it reminds us of the rich heritage that we have as believers in Jesus. It it inspires us to know our history and to know our Bibles and to be able to explain the gospel to, to those we encounter with wisdom and with reasons for the hope that we have in Jesus. It encourages us to be bold witnesses that declare God's character and his power and his sovereignty and his faithfulness and his promises to fulfill them. Stephen's short ministry here, it's an example to all believers of every generation of what it looks like to actually live for Jesus. He walked in the presence of God. He was filled with his spirit. He was enabled to be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his devotion and his total obedience to the Lord, it shows us what a balanced Christian life should be. One that demonstrates God's radical love and his salvation, no matter what the cost. So as we come to communion today, um, the the band's going to come back up. I know I use that word radical many times. When we think about communion and we think about the radical love that Jesus had for us, the death that he died so that we can be reconciled to him, We also need to think about the radical work that God is doing in our lives today. If you're sitting in this room today and you're a believer, if you've been born again, that work of God is radical. It comes from the Latin meaning root. It's a change in the very nature, the very core, the very root of who we are. And God does a miracle in our hearts and he changes us and it grows to encompass our whole being and our whole life. And that's why it can't just be a piece here or a piece there. God has filled us with his spirit. He has given us new life. He has made us alive from the dead. And that is a radical work of God today. And if you don't know that work today, then I pray that you would believe in him today and place your faith in him.
So as we come to communion and we take that cracker and we break it, we remember Jesus' body that was broken for us and we dip it in the wine or the grape juice. We remember his, his blood that was shed for us so that we could be forgiven and reconciled. We're going to worship God this morning through our songs. We're going to worship God through our giving. We have offering boxes on the sidewalls and in the back, and giving is simply a part of our worship. We give back to God just a portion of what he's given to us. And if you're here this morning and God is speaking to you and he's challenging you and you want to pray with somebody or talk to somebody about that, there will be leaders in the back to pray with you. And so I encourage you to do that. And I encourage you to hang out afterward to to fellowship and get a snack, a coffee. I think there's some donuts in the back there as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your words, for this message that was preached through Stephen and Lord, we do give him honor as one of the first martyrs in your church, Lord. Father, as we look at his sermon, as we look at his life, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us and inspire us, Lord, and fill us so that as we approach your word, that you would build that into us, Lord, and that you would set it on fire in a way that would connect with those around us that you would compel us, Lord, to preach your word, to share your love, and that you would open up the hearts of the hearers, Lord, to receive it. Father, I pray that we would give you every area of our life. I pray, Father, that you would just draw us close to you. Draw us near as we seek your face, your beautiful face. Lord, we're so grateful for your love. We're so grateful for your mercy. Jesus, we're so grateful that you loved us and it was your plan from the beginning to rescue us. And we see you throughout all of the stories that we've heard so many times. I pray that we would see you in a fresh new way today. Help us to hear your voice, Lord, we pray. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.